Welcome back to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast sponsored by Hunt to Eat and Filson. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and today we are going to talk about band-tailed pigeons. Yes, band-tailed pigeons. They are America's final huntable native species of pigeon, and they are native only to the West, primarily the states of California, Oregon, and Washington, although they go from British Columbia all the way down to Baja. And there is another subspecies of them that goes from about Idaho all the way down to Sonora, Mexico. They are the closest living relative to the extinct passenger pigeon, and they are a species that is extremely special to me. I enjoy hunting them every single fall, even though it is a very, very limited season. It's only nine days, and the bag limit is just two. So I talk with fish and wildlife biologist Mark Siemens about the conservation status of this bird, as well as how to hunt them and, of course, how to prep and cook and eat them. So without further ado, let's take it away. Hey, Mark, welcome to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I'm glad to have you on. Thanks, Hank. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So today we're going to be talking all about one of the more obscure game birds in North America, the band-tailed pigeon. It's a uh, it's a creature of the West, and it's if you're if you're listening to this anywhere east of the Colorado Rockies, chances are you may not even know it, that this bird exists. We're gonna we're gonna fix that problem today. Mark is a uh, is a biologist with U.S. Department of Fish and Wildlife, so. Introduce yourself and tell people a little bit about your, your biology background and your familiarity with the pigeons and what you hunt and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, it goes back a ways. I was born in Oklahoma, but mostly raised in your neck of the woods, northern California, where I was quite the fisherman and seldom the hunter. But um, it seemed like when I did hunt, I, you know, when I was of age, I got to go hunting with my dad and his three brothers and I don't remember much about the hunting, but I remember hanging out with them, and that that was always such a treat for me. So I grew up fishing, but also hunting to a small degree, and just thinking about it as a as a, a well-rounded activity. You know, not just hunting, but socializing with family, and I still do that to this day. One of my main pursuits these days is uh, deer hunting. I'm in Colorado right now, um, it's where I'm stationed. So there's ample opportunity for things like elk which I've hunted, of course, antelope and deer. I just like mule deer hunting. You know, besides that, uh, I like to bird hunt early in the year. Uh, I have a dog. I use her sometimes, not others. Um, Mostly grouse. Uh, I try for the duskies here and the ptarmigan mostly, just things I can drive to in a day hunt from my house. And occasionally I'll go over to Nebraska or Kansas and hunt some pheasants later in the year. Yeah, you got chickens out there too. Yes, and I was in that region last year and... I decided I was hunting quail. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's the coolest thing about western Kansas, especially. You can you can get all three. You can get pheasants, prairie chickens, and quail in the same day if you know where to go. Yes, I saw pheasants and the quail. I was in southeast Colorado, actually. And the prairie chickens were there. I just did not see them. But anyway, uh, my background, you know, when I graduated high school, it's been a while. Guidance counselors, I think, were present, but I don't recall that. And I just started to work, and I went to college part-time, thinking I'll figure something out, and got into biology, started taking biology classes, and realized pretty quickly through some contacts that you can have a career as a wildlife biologist, and to me, that was shocking, and 
it, it took four or five years to actually figure out what that meant. You know, I thought it meant working on a refuge, possibly, or some, you know, law enforcement. <clears throat> but as I went along and started gaining more knowledge and more interest in the field, it became apparent to me you could you could really do some neat science in the field. Uh, there's a lot of people, a lot of top-notch scientists that have worked and are working in the field of wildlife biology. So I kept kind of pursuing my college career, if you will. At the same time, I was working and doing research, and I got a bachelor's degree in biology, a master's in wildlife biology at Humboldt State. Of course, everybody either goes to <laughs> Davis or Humboldt, and especially out here, and there's a big rivalry between the two schools. Yeah, early on, I got into Davis. I was at Sac State when I started, and that's where I got my bachelor's degree. And once I figured out what I wanted to do, I applied for Davis. I got in, but I had made friends at Sac State. So in hindsight, it wasn't the greatest career move. Davis has a better program uh, in the field, but that's what I did. I ended up at Humboldt after after that, got my master's there. And then I ended up at the University of Minnesota, where I got a Ph.D., uh, is that where you've met Rocky? I met Rocky at Humboldt. At Humboldt, he was okay. At Humboldt. Rocky Gutierrez was my professor there and at Minnesota. Very cool. Yeah. We're going to be talking to Rocky Gutierrez on this podcast, and we're going to focus uh, primarily on mountain quail, and, and we may bleed into a little bit of uh, valley quail, too, because he's that guy's kind of the guru of game birds. He He is one of the true experts that we have in this country, without a doubt, and it's far-reaching. I mean, he's studied every upland game bird. I think his his master's was on bantail pigeons. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, know. I, I was talking to him on this and he's like, well, you should have me on as well. I'm like, I can't have you on every episode. <laughs> oh, that would have been fun. He and I are really good friends. He actually uh, a sidebar. He, we had him deputized and he officiated our wedding, my wife and I. I hope he damn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what did you do your research in um, in graduate school? Because usually people focus on birds or, or whatever it is. Well. When I went to graduate school, another thing that surprised me was they, somebody might actually pay you to go to graduate school <laughs> instead of you having to pay tuition. Now that got covered in a small stipend. And what was available to me at the time um, was studying spotted owls kind of occurs in the same area as bantail pigeons occur, <laughs> as do, it turns do. out. Very, they're, very they're not as delicious as bantail pigeons, though. I can't say that. I've never tried one. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, it, it provided me a great opportunity to live in the field for about six months a year, which was outstanding in some of the western states. But more than that, what it really put me in touch with was a lot of scientists who do a lot of quantitative research, as it turns out. So I gained a lot of expertise, if you will, at the time in how to estimate things like population numbers, uh, annual survival rates, reproductive rates, things like that. And I didn't totally see it at the time when I was doing it all. But as it turned out, when once I had got my Ph.D., there was quite a few jobs that were open to me that were really appealing, some of them in academia. And I thought about that, but also with the USGS, which does a lot of research and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and Really, the first job I got offered was with the Fish and Wildlife Service, and I took it. It was just right down my alley. It was a lot of quantitative stuff, but also working nationally and internationally and designing studies for wildlife. And I was hired in the Migratory Bird Program back east, so it was working on migratory birds. 
That's right. You, you, uh, like a, a previous guest of mine, Owen Fit, uh, Fitzsimmons, are a my I love this term a webless specialist, right? Which is the, the, the birds that fly up and down the, the the Canada, United States, and Mexico that aren't ducks and geese. Correct. In some point of confusion there, I think with some people who who actually think about migratory webless game birds, it also includes marsh birds, uh, the rallets. Let's let me let me stop you for a second. So there's sure. this big rumor that if you talk to duck hunters, that you know everybody's seen coots fly, right? And coots can't fly worth a damn when they're trying to get up off the water. But everybody, the, the everybody will say, well, yeah, well, you know, they they migrate at night at thirty thousand feet. So they once they get up there, they're pretty impressive. So is that true or not? That I don't know. That sounds awful high. Coots, I know. <laughs> I don't know about that. That one I hadn't heard of. I am far from a coot expert. <laughs> well, yeah, um, the, the whole I need to get Ariel Fournier back, and she's a rail expert. Like they, mm-hmm. I know they migrate at night, and I know they they apparently migrate super high up. So that's why yeah. nobody ever sees them migrate. Pretty much all rails do, or they're believed to. You know, a lot of new information's coming to light on bird migration, especially the height of migrations in general, just because we now have such technology and radar <laughs> that you can detect migration flocks of birds and can't necessarily pull the species apart, but we're finding out all sorts of new stuff with, with how how far they migrate and how high. Well, the 30,000 foot this for a second. So one of the things I wanted to explain to, to listeners is that Scientists like you and and virtually almost everybody that I'm having on this podcast, because I want to make this a science-heavy kind of season, is, correct me if I'm wrong, but much of what Fish and Wildlife and the local fish and game agencies and USGS, you're trying to get more data on the, the game species and their associate. For example, if you did waterfowl, you'd also probably end up looking at the other webbed migrators as well to give really all of us an opportunity to know, okay, well, what is the status of the species? What's the habitat like? Is everything around? Uh, are, are the populations decreasing or decreasing? That translates most of the listeners of this podcast to, do, can you hunt them or not? And can is does the bag limit go up or down? Or does the season go up or down? So this is that science and scientists like yourself are underpinning most of the seasons in the United States, right? Correct. There's a distinction between, at least for me, of course, with migratory birds and non-migratory birds. So, of course, your non-migratory birds are more your quail, turkeys, grouse, those kind of things. I don't deal with those. We deal with things that essentially migrate cross state lines. That's why it's, you know, been deemed a federal responsibility. So the non-migratory birds, individual states handle those. They handle their own seasons, right? So California doesn't have to look like Oregon, doesn't have to look like Nevada for the non-migratory piece. For the migratory birds, there's a large framework in place about how we develop harvest management plants. That's generally what we call them, or strategies. And it's it's a definite partnership between the federal and state governments um, via what we call the flyway system, which most hunters, I'm sure, have heard of migratory flyways. You know, there's four of them in the country. Birds tend to stick to those where they breed and where they winter. But anyway, there's states within each one, of course, and there's councils within each flyway. And so we work with those councils 
to develop harvest strategies and develop a system where we propagate regulations every year. And so in the Pacific Flyway, where you are, you know, you've got the coastal states, Nevada, Arizona, and so forth, Idaho, Utah. Their regulations for a bird that might occur across those states is going to look pretty similar. It's what we call the framework for bandtail pigeons. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's only three states in the Pacific, but they have the same number of days, bat, daily bag limit, and so forth that you can hunt every year. It doesn't have to be that way. Historically, when you look at regulations, it wasn't always that way. I don't know why. <laughs> I've tried to figure out some of this stuff that happened in the 30s and 40s. Why did Washington have a closed season, but the other states didn't for bandtails? Stuff like that. Not always clear to me why that happened. But these days, usually within a flyway for an individual species, even waterfowl too, regs are usually more uniform. Not all, they're not perfect, but they're close. In theory, if you, the same population of doves or bandtails or whatever moves through these states so that if you have a massive bag limit, say in, in one state, but not another, you could really put the wood to a species on its way through or where it winters or where it spends, you know, other parts of time. And then you can really do damage to an overall population because it's not only in your one state. Yes. And there, there's obviously some species you want to divide up, even within the Pacific Flyway, different cackling geese and so forth. But with most species, bantail pigeons, for example, what we're talking about, we generally consider the bantail pigeons in the Pacific Flyway as coming from one population. We're managing that entire population. We don't want local populations of bantails to go extinct, so... We watch for that, but in general, we don't set regulations for that because hunting tends to get dispersed. And these days, it seems like harvest seems to be more spread out than it was historically. That may be something we'll talk about with bandtails mm-hmm. because that definitely was not the case at one point in time. So there's two flyways of, of bandtails, right? There's like a, there's a, are they actually in the, kind of, what is it, the central flyway? Yes. Okay, so it's officially the central flyway, but we really think of it kind of like the the birds that go from British Columbia to Baja, and then there's a bunch of birds that go from like Idaho to probably Sonora, and and they're sort of two parallel lines. Do they ever mix? Yes, they do. They do. So as you touched on, there's some people think they're subspecies. They have been identified as two different subspecies. They're the same species, just they look a little different, a little do bit they? different size. The ones in the interior, what we'll call the interior, are slightly smaller, a little paler, I believe, grayer, um, but hard to tell apart, you know, unless you were to see them side by side, I imagine, which I don't think people do, but um, they do intermix. So to back up a step, we we said that the coastal population is the coastal states, runs from British Columbia down through the coastal states into Baja. Whereas the interior population is also called the Four Corners population because it's roughly centered around the Four Corners states of Arizona, Utah, New Mexico, and Colorado, and then into the highlands of Mexico. Gotcha. And they do intermix. There's historical banding studies um, where people have banded thousands, tens of thousands of these things in, in both flyways. Sometimes, very rarely, you pick up a banded bird that crossed over. Hmm. Well, give me a, an idea about this migration. So, so if you're 
Mr. Bantail Pigeon, what does your year look like? Because like everybody think I think can put in their head what ducks do. So they they fly south for the winter and fly north for the for the summer. So what is what is a bantail doing during its year? So because I know here in California you've got this northern zone and southern zone, which doesn't really make a lot of sense because it's not really northern and not really southern, but it's geared towards where the pigeons are in their in their annual cycle. So so walk me through them from I don't know spring through the following spring. Sure. So bantails, general I say generally because there's some big exceptions, but they generally follow that same pattern that ducks do. So in the spring, as early as March, maybe even a little earlier, bantails start migrating north. So in the Pacific Flyway where you are, they will generally winter from kind of the midpoint of California south. Okay. So most of the bantails from British Columbia, Washington, Oregon, Northern California are going to move south. In the summer, they start nesting. They can start nesting early. Bantails kind of a unique bird in that there's been documented, documented nesting, I think, in every month of the year. Huh. Um, and it's really tied to food availability, people think. You know, they're going to migrate out of the northern states of like Colorado and, and Utah in the winter because it's it's just not hospitable there for them. But in the southern states, they, they might winter in southern New Mexico, Arizona. They winter in southern California. If there's food availability, especially as they get into Mexico, they've been known to, to nest. Not in great numbers, but they will continue to nest year round. So, but in general, it's it's just like waterfowl. They push north in the spring. They start nesting. They nest a little bit later, like their peak nesting is somewhere around July uh, in the Pacific Flyway and in the Rocky Mountains, we think. They fledge their young. They can nest two or three times a year, um, we think. It's kind of hard to track these things out in the wild, but we think they can nest up to two or three times. And again, it's probably food dependent. And then as you get into the fall, they start moving back south. However, it's been noted multiple times that you can have them winter essentially in British Columbia or further north in the interior population. And it's generally believed that's just a complete function of food availability. If something, a big berry crop, uh, acorn crop, something is available to them, you know, maybe they don't feel the need to leave or leave as early. So it's, it, it they, can be variable. Uh, you know, most columbids, so most of the pigeons and doves species, they don't really like cold weather because they don't have down or anything like that. So how do they manage, you know, winter in British Columbia? Or are they really right on the coast where it's, you know, cold and, and cold and spitty, but but not too bad? Yeah, they're they're even as you move north, they're a, more of a lower mountain elevation bird. So I would assume those records they're they're from a while ago where they're wintering. They were noted wintering around British Columbia. Um they're coastal, so temperatures somewhat ameliorated. But these pigeons, you know, they, they really, I, from what I understand, they really like to focus on the available food source and make use of it, whether it's, um, you know, madrone or pinion pine or acorns, and, and they can focus on that. But they can focus on bird feeders, too. <laughs> yeah, I They can focus on crops. You know, they show up in a lot of different places. Um and there was concern about crop depredation at one time, although that's generally gone away. But so I think the migration patterns and and the breeding patterns to some extent too are tied to that food availability. 
Hey everybody, I'd like to take this time to thank Filson for sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. As you may know, I wear their gear in the field all the time. I love their vests. I love their outerwear. Their tin cloth jacket is awesome. Definitely take a look at their collection of gear. A lot of it is new. A lot of it has been around for decades, and all of it is super, super high quality. If you are in the market for something to wear on your upland hunt this fall, absolutely check out Filson. I can totally vouch for them from personal experience. Filson was founded in Seattle in 1897 when they started outfitting prospectors for the Klondike Gold Rush. And ever since then, they've been committed to creating best-in-class gear for the world's toughest people in the most unforgiving conditions. So let's get into that. Let's talk about that. If I'm a band-tail pigeon, what are my favorite things to eat, or does it change throughout the year? Well, it does change because... What you may find on their summer grounds may not be available on their wintering grounds, but <clears throat> again, it's it's what's available. So in the breeding range in the north, when you when I've seen them, they're eating a lot of berries, uh, huckleberries. That what is it, cascara berries? Oh yeah, yeah. The uh, uh, that's a California coffee berry is one of is yeah. one version of that. But any berries they can really get their hand, you know, their feed on. Um, as you move south, they also like hardwood forest, especially oak forest. So they're big on mast, madrone, uh, acorns especially. So as you move south, especially into California, you have some, and Oregon too, in the Willamette Valley and so forth, you have some massive acorn and oak forests. So they'll take advantage of those too, especially as they move south. I'll put a picture of it in the show notes, but a, you know, a valley oak acorn can be you know, two inches long. I mean, obviously not every acorn is going to be that big, but bantails are, they're a big pigeon, but they're still a pigeon. It's kind of a, a large mouthful for a pigeon, no? It is surprising. And it's always been noted that it looks like they got a small mouth. So they may be a big, sturdy pigeon, but their mouth doesn't look that big. But somehow they do get those acorns in. And, and like almost all birds, they have a crop. You know, it's kind of a, think of it as a pre-stomach where they can store food and help partially digest it and the bantail's pretty good at that from what we know as far as the acorns you know they've got a shell on them and so i think it's the the crop work within the bantail pigeon itself that helps break down that acorn before it passes on to the stomach in the bantail interesting i know they like pinion pines too because uh, one of the spots where i can hunt them it, well, <laughs> right now, I mean, this is sort of a weird moment in time for us in California because um, our national forests are temporarily shut down because of fire danger. But normally, uh, I can hunt them in the Toyabe National Forest where they really, really, really like pinion pines. Yes, and, and especially the Four Corners, that, that interior population, as you can imagine, has a lot of opportunity to feed on pinions, and they do. And again, that's if you've pulled pinion pine seeds out of a pinion pine cone you know they have a pretty thick little husk on them too or shell and again that's the, the probably the work of the crop that helps them digest that gotcha i guess they'll probably switch to bugs in the in the springtime because the the chicks need the protein and then uh and then the, the hens need need to just recover after laying so many eggs probably true i don't know that we know completely what how, how they make use of insects but most of the especially the game birds that I'm familiar with is in the ground game birds, the grouse, the quail. I mean, a lot of them do focus on insects early on. And part of it is that protein requirement. So this is a unique bird in the sense of most of the birds we hunt, and you just alluded to that, are ground birds. 
And most of them give birth to precocious young, which means little balls of fluff that can go feed themselves. You know, all the ducks, all the geese, all of the gallinaceous birds, they hatch and then they're being led around to eat yummy things by their mom. But they're not being fed by their mom. Now, the, the, all the doves and pigeons are different, though. So the doves and pigeons have to be fed by their parents, right? Correct. They are what's called altricial. So meaning they're born not able to feed themselves, defend themselves, so forth. So they're completely reliant on the adults. And the bantails, both adults take turns actually incubating eggs and, and feeding young. But that crop comes into play again, of course, because they produce something called uh, uh, pigeon milk. milk. Pigeon, yeah, pigeon milk. milk. Yeah, I'd heard about this. What is so, that? It's kind of a oily crud looking stuff, I think, that <laughs> I've seen a little bit in other other doves. But it, it's produced from glands in the crop. And it's, it's you know, partially from what's in the crop, but mostly it's produced from the epithelial lining, I believe, within the crop. And this is what they feed pigeons for their first, I don't remember, week or so of their life. They, and they wean it off them pretty quick. But that's what the, the young first get is this stuff called pigeon milk. That's produced by the adults. It's so weird. Like it, it is. <laughs> I'm, I'll I'll see if I can uh, post a, a a link to like a video of pigeon milk because uh, it's just like it's like, I mean, I'll, I'll, if you watch nature shows, you've seen adult birds feed their baby birds, and it's usually pretty gnarly. But pigeon milk is especially gnarly. It is, and you know, later on in in the breeding cycle, young still in the nest or just out, um, they're regurgitating whole foods or, or more whole foods from their crop right. as, the, as the young are getting older. So the crop also functions as a storage device for the birds. I'd like to take a moment to thank Hunt to Eat for sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Hunt to Eat is a casual hunting and angling apparel company based on community, real food, and conservation. Head over to hunttoeat.com and check out the Hank Shaw t-shirt collection. You'll also find wild game recipes, hats, and other kinds of gear, including aprons with the Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook logo on them. If you use the code HANKSHAW at checkout, you will get 10% off your order. Thanks again to Hunt to Eat, and back to the podcast. So one major thing about bantail pigeons, that, so if you're, if you're familiar with this bird at all out there, you know that it's A, a native pigeon. It's native to this part of the world. B, it is a big pigeon. It's bigger than the typical, you know, I don't know, neighborhood pigeon, the, the Columbia, uh, Livia, the rock dove. And the thing about pigeons versus doves is they are larger, they're smarter, they're tougher, they live longer, and they have fewer young. So you mentioned that they, they can nest two to three times a year, which is good. I hadn't known that. Um, but unlike doves, of which there's bajillions of, there's not a lot of bantail pigeons because they don't raise a ton of eggs at a shot so that they rely more on more of their chicks actually becoming full-grown pigeons than doves do, or the dove method is kind of like, we're going to nest and have 80 trillion chicks and some of them are going to survive, you know, whereas the, the pigeons are going to be more like, well, we have two, and we want to make sure that both of them survive. But from a hunter's perspective, correct me if I'm wrong, 
this is why you can't kill 10 band-tailed pigeons a day because their recruitment is not nearly as dramatic as it would be if you were a dove. Well, correct. And even for band-tails, it's even a little bit more tough than you described because they typically produce one egg. Oh. Um, you know, from what little we know, it's really, really difficult to find their nests. And I, I really applaud researchers who have found band-tail, multiple band-tail pigeon nests because that is hard. Um, Aren't they way the hell up in trees? They can be. They, in the Pacific, they, they like to nest in the conifers, um, also the hardwoods too, but they can be up to 60, 70, 80 feet or even higher, but they typically are below 60, I believe. Um, but they usually produce one egg 10% of the time from what we know, maybe two, and that's it. Mm. Um, in re-nesting, although I did say they re-nested, from what we know, especially in the northern reaches of their range, that's probably not all that common either. Interesting. So an, an, an analogy for this would be if you're an angler, they're like sharks. Mm. So sharks, um, one of the reasons why certain species of sharks can be threatened or even endangered is because they're they're kind of the same deal. They give they do not birth as many young for the most part, and they take a lot longer to become an adult so that you can damage a population of either sharks or band-tailed pigeons much more quickly than you can, say, morning doves. And there's this great book that I'm going to put a link to in the show notes called Band-tailed Pigeon. It's by a guy named Worth Mathewson out of Oregon. And he describes the hunting of these pigeons in the 1970s, like the early 1970s. And this is back when the bag limit was around 10 or even 15 maybe. And hunters, this is one of the very few examples, very few examples in American history where hunter effort was additive to the point where they were affecting the overall population of of the animal. Whereas virtually every other game animal in North America is by design. We talked about this at the beginning of the podcast. The, the harvest of them is regulated to the point where mortality from us shooting them is n- compensatory. It's not additive. So in other words, so if we if there's a thousand pigeons in the world, 30 of them are going to die no matter what. And it doesn't really matter if they're shot by hunters or if they fall out of trees or disease or whatever, whatever. But if if hunters kill more than that 30 in a given year, that's additive and that's what we don't want. But this apparently happened to the pigeons in the 70s. And I'm not entirely sure what the story is. Um, well, how did that happen? Was it just ignorance? You know, that's a <clears throat> the, the bantail pigeon management history, if you will, uh, harvest management history. I think you have to go back further okay. to around the turn of the century, about 1900, 1910. And you had two things happening. One was with the bantail. And really, we were at the tail end of the passenger pigeon, right? Right. So... As folks may know, the passenger pigeon numbered in the billions, and now they're extinct. As it turns out, the bantail and the passenger pigeon are very, very closely related. They may be the most closely related species that there were at the time. Um, So right about 1910, 1915, somewhere in there, there's a a gentleman at Berkeley, Joseph Bird Grinnell. He's a, a famous ornithologist. Oh, yeah, there's a college named after him in Iowa. 
yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff named after him, actually. And he, he was quite the ornithologist, general scientist, did an incredible work, but wrote a paper. And there's probably other folks. I, I don't want to just credit him, but that's what, I, what I've come across. It's a prominent paper that's actually accessible where he writes about the demise of the band-tailed pigeon. Um, and I'm sure, having just witnessed the passenger pigeon essentially go extinct by that point, um, he was concerned about the band-tail. Because what was happening is you would have these massive hunts that were mostly occurring in Southern California, but they were also occurring in the north, too, around mineral sites, which we can talk about also. But Mm -hmm. these pigeons would congregate in different areas in the south during the wintering season, and they were – nobody really knows how many were shot. But you've got a population that might be 10 million or something. I don't – nobody knows either at the time, but that's a ballpark, I guess. And you might have been shooting over a million of them a year and a bird that can't reproduce very fast. And not only that, to kind of add another layer to it, part of the demise of the passenger pigeon was related to market hunting. Right. Where professional professional hunters go out, shoot as many as they can, pack them into barrels, put them on a train for market. Um, market hunting was actually occurring for passenger pigeons, or uh, I'm sorry, for band-tailed pigeons also at that time. Yeah, I mean, so so 1918 is the Migratory Bird Treaty, so that's a big marker for the kind of the beginning of the end of market hunting. But it's my understanding that real end of market hunting, I mean, it was sort of state by state and dribs and drabs all the way into the 30s. It <clears throat> it was, but it seemed like for the band tails, there was some mutual agreement within the Pacific area that they were going to close the season. And the season, as far as we know, that was enforced, the season was closed about 1913, 1914, I believe, till 1932. Oh. Just because of this really great concern by these real prominent scientists at the time. Now, when did the last passenger pigeon die? Oh, 1914. But they there were extinct in, the, extinct in the wild in the 1890s, I believe. Gotcha. So that's that's probably the, the the political or emotional or scientific basis for that. Like, wow, we just we just whacked the most populous bird in North America, and we don't want it to do this to the to its cousin. Correct. Yeah, maybe the most populous bird in the world. People have speculated about that, and it, it went extinct for a variety of reasons. Overharvest was definitely it, but it was coupled with some biology that the pigeon had too. Um, it didn't avoid the gun was one of them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, kind of like bandtails, you know, they, they don't necessarily fly away once you start shooting their neighbors. <laughs> um, spruce grouse were a little like that. Yeah. Grouse, fool's grouse. Yeah. Uh, dusky grouse too. But um, with bandtails, there was just this wholesale slaughter going on and nobody really knew the magnitude except that it was great. And there was great concern. They closed the season and then it reopened some years later. So there was some initial impetus by the states and folks involved before the Migratory Bird Treaty Act to get a handle on bandtail pigeons. So when they opened the season again, that's when you had a, I, I don't remember, 30 to 60 day season, but 10 birds a day was the bag. And that stayed in place up until really the mid 70s. And something else occurred at that time. There was some national monitoring programs for birds that were implemented in the 60s called the Breeding Bird Survey. And it was able to track a lot of bird species. One of the 
species that could track was the Pacific bantail pigeon. And there was just this decline, just relentless decline year to year in the birds that were being counted. And so beginning in the 70s, there was a restriction on the bag again. And so finally, it just kept ratcheting down until we're at our current level of two per day. Yeah, two per day. So for those of you who are not familiar with this bird or with hunting this bird, there's a good reason because hunting a bantail pigeon in this day and age is, and we'll get into this a little bit more later, but is is ceremonial to, to a large extent. I mean, even today, and, and I've only lived in, in the West for four, or 16 years now, and even today, um, you will see enough where you would think you'd be able to have a, a bag limit of bigger than two. But we've just discussed one of the reasons why it's it's low. And everyone is super, you know, to put it gun shy, literally, of messing this up again. So they've kept the season open. And it's been a kind of a... It's almost a season, and it only lasts eight to or seven to ten days, pretty much. And it's a two bird per day and three or six bird, you know, possession limit. So the harvest of this bird has got to be very, very low and has been for quite some time. But there's something about pigeon hunting, and we're going to get into the actual hunting of them in a, in a little bit, that those of us who do it, and I do it, I try to do it every year, we're really, really, there's something about chasing this bird that's special but talk to me a bit about where are we now in the conservation status of the bantail pigeon that's a that's a great question that's to kind of finish the thought of how we got to where we are okay really the 50s and into the 70s in the pacific population you were harvesting two three four five hundred thousand pigeons a year is that something the population could sustain? Maybe not. All evidence points to the populations reduced from the 50s to the 90s, 2000s. Folks have speculated it's half of what it was today, what it was in 1970. The harvest today, when you look at the Pacific population, is nowhere near what it was. It's now in the tens of thousands, you know, 20 to 30,000 maybe. Many fewer hunters, of course. But the bag limit also has something to do with that. So I'm not saying reducing the bag is what's caused the pigeon to stop declining, and it apparently has. But it definitely could play a role when you think about harvest going from 500,000 to 50,000 to 20,000 and so forth. But for the past 10 years or so, uh, it looks like, at least for the Pacific Coast population, it's been pretty stable. And we've kind of staunched this decline. For the interior population, <laughs> whole different ballgame. We don't, it, it, its numbers are an order of magnitude less hmm. than the Pacific population. We don't know what's, we really don't know what's in Mexico, but north of Mexico in the breeding time of year, we think there were 250,000 of these maybe in the 70s. It's apparently has declined also, we think. And we're unsure what it is in the interior right now. They're still out there. You can still find them. But we've also reduced the bag in the hunting days like we did in the Pacific, mostly because of the uncertainty. There was never that much harvest of the interior population. You know, it was less than 10,000 a year always. Hmm. And today it's less than 1,000. Wow, less than 1,000 birds a year in the interior. Yeah. 
it's right about I, there. Yeah. You know, I bet it's I bet it's like a hundred guys too. Well, you know, is it one? We have such trouble counting the interior birds. They're sparse. They're hard to find. You can count them at bird feeders, but we don't know what that means really. Um, but we were also having trouble counting the harvest because there's so few hunters. And we have a national harvest information program, which yeah, some of your hip. listeners may be hip, yeah, may be familiar with. You get a hip stamp and so forth. Um, it just wasn't working for the interior band-tailed pigeon because there were so few hunters. We just weren't capturing them in our sample, if you will. So a couple of years ago, two, three, in the interior population only, we initiated a plan that if you were going to hunt band-tailed pigeons, you had to have a special permit. So New Mexico, Colorado, and Utah have a special permit. And Arizona hasn't joined yet, but I think they're going to. So now we have a much better idea of how many people are actually hunting band-tailed pigeons in the interior and what that, the harvest is. We know who to survey. That's a good – that's okay. So uh, I have – I hunt birds in those states quite a bit. And I have noticed that you've got to get, it's usually free. You know, it's just, you know, you need your bandtail permit. Uh, you know, sometimes it's like five bucks or whatever. But I hadn't realized that, that it's just to, it's to figure out, like, who the hell is hunting these birds? We don't know. Yeah. And just because, because it's free, except in one state, it is $5. But I think you get more people signing up that actually, than actually hunt. So you go back and survey them and figure out. You know, out of these 500 people who got a permit, 250 of them hunted, something like that, usually. And, you know, the success rate's not high on bantail pigeons anyway in the interior <laughs> because right. they are hard to find. So, they yeah. habitat requirements. In, oh, Both, uh, in general. In either. So, so this is getting into the, the hunting aspect of it. So if I'm going to look for bantail pigeons, and let's start where you are in the, in the Colorado area. If I wanted to look for them... Where do you even start? I, I tell you what, I, I would start at bird feeders. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but no, ser seriously, seriously, to find, I, not to hunt, but just to find them. Um, I've actually tried to capture and, and have captured bandtail pigeons to band in the interior in Colorado. And um, you, you capture them at feeding sites. That's the only way to do it here. They're just so spread out on the landscape. They're generally in the coniferous forest in the mountains. You know, they're going to be move around a little bit probably year to year, and it's related to food availability. So I don't think there's a limiting factor as far as the forest. It probably has to be some minimal height for them to feel comfortable. But other than that, you know, what do they need? They need that food source. They need those berries. And that's pretty much how you look for them in the interior population. As you get into New Mexico in southern Colorado and southern Utah, but New Mexico and Arizona, you, they do show up more in the oaks, too, okay. which they like mast in the pinion, as we'd mentioned before. So, again, the nesting I don't think is too specific, other there's probably some what we call microsite requirements. You know, they need a certain height and concealment and so forth. But um, they just like to be know where the food is, somewhere around the food. They can travel great distances. Pigeons are great flyers. So it's it's not a it's not a big deal to fly ten or twenty miles if you're a pigeon. So they have big home ranges, you know, where they can venture out. But Ah, I was wondering about that. You know, I mean one of the things with say quail is they can have a home range of less than a mile. I, I imagine that pigeons would just they're a little bit more like ducks where they're like, eh, I think I want to go forty miles over that way. <laughs> yeah, the, I don't think they have much trouble. And I don't know that we know how far they move in the interior too much. 
you know, within a feeding range because we just haven't studied them that much. But in the Pacific, it's a little different. We have, you know, use some radio telemetry techniques and some banding and recovery. But in the Pacific, the habitat requirements are similar. You know, they're in the mixed conifer forest. Usually in the northern part of the range, it's more of the lowland mountains, but all the way down to the coast, you know, the coastline. Um, as you move south, they get into the more pine oak and oak forest in California. Um, again, related to food. They're, they're after the food. Mm-hmm. They're after the berries. They're after the mast. Um, so, but in this is this is a good segue point mm-hmm. into mineral sites. Yeah, yeah. So that's a so <laughs> this is one of those things where this is another reason why the bag limit kind of needs to stay at two until we've got a, a a lot of pigeons so likely we can maybe get three or four at some point but this is the thing like where i hunt them you and i both have said that you know we'll hunt them as a target of opportunity when they're like when something else is open so grouse or quail or whatever like oh there's a pigeon and it's the season let's let's get it however if you want to actually go to a place and get your two pigeons you'll look for a mineral spring and they're dotted all over the west coast both in the cascades the coastal range and the sierra nevada and if you find them and you're going to want to scout that out and check and see if the pigeons are there in early september because when the season rolls around and usually that's in mid-september you're going to want to be there because chances are you're going to be able to see enough pigeons where you'll you will get your two and that's all well and good in this modern era when we're like I said, it's kind of a ceremonial hunt. You're just getting a couple of birds every season and not that many per day. Now, swing back to 70s and before, like we were talking about, where your bag limits were very, very high. And you can see that it's a little bit it's borderline unethical to to kind of ambush them at the spot that they have to go to. Yeah, no comment on that. But the, the mineral sites, it, it's interesting through time you can see kind of our understanding of the pigeon use of those sites. You can see our understanding evolve because you can read some of the literature back in the forties and fifties and folks were like, Oh, they're around these mineral sites, but we don't think they're using them or, you know, there's some mention of that. They are using them and we'll, we can go through that. But back in the day they you, you get large concentrations of pigeons around these mineral sites, hundreds, if not thousands in the day. And, there's records in, you know, magazine articles from Oregon back in the day of private landowners allowing people to go on their property and just harvest a lot of these pigeons. They're just sitting there. They don't fly away. You can shoot them. They they might flutter around. They might try and avoid you a little, but they don't really depart much. <laughs> they hang around the same area. And as it turns out, they were using those mineral sites. What are they uh, using them for? Well, it took a, minerals, of course, but... It took some recent study. Um, a colleague of mine in the Fish and Wildlife Service has done a lot of work on this. Name His name is Todd Sanders. Uh, done a lot of work on the Pacific Coast Bantail Pigeon. And he has created a mineral site and mineral sites where he's they're artificial. But he can manipulate mineral concentrations and what minerals are actually in them. And through experimentation, he found out that the real limiting mineral is sodium. So people thought it was calcium or potassium, but as it turns out, the berries actually do contain calcium and potassium, things like that, but they don't contain sodium, or at least not a lot. And so right now, the understanding is that they're going to these mineral sites 
to get sodium. Oh, like a salt lake. Yep. That's exactly what it is. And they don't have to go every day. You know, it's every week or so. Okay. Uh, as, as far as we know about the return rates is, is best we can monitor those. So you might see thousands of pigeons at a site one day and the next and the next. They're probably different pigeons. <laughs> okay. Um, they're so just that's really interesting. I mean, so, I mean, every organism, any, I mean, everybody needs salt of some, some way, but what is it about pigeons and why, why aren't there 50 other, 100 other species of bird going to these same mineral spot sites using the same, for the same reason? I mean, what's, what is it about pigeons that gets them at this effectively a salt lick that you don't see raptors there, you don't see hummingbirds there or whatever? It's got to be diet. It's got to be a lack of sodium in, in the things that they are eating because a good point of comparison is the interior bantail pigeons. They don't use these sources. They don't use mineral sites or salt licks or anything like that. So the general thought is that in the interior, sodium is just not limiting in their environment and their food that they're taking in. So they're not seeking out these places. Whereas in the Pacific, up and down the coast, that must be the case. Huh. Well, has anybody done a foods habit study? It seems like that we, we need to find a graduate student to do that. It seems more opportunistic in what I've been able to see. There may be some out there that I don't know. They do eat a lot of berries, a lot of stuff that's really rich in water and, and stuff that really flushes your system, if you will, you know, rich, yeah, juicy well, berries. So one of the things about the California coffee berries, the cascara berries that you're mentioning is that, I mean, we, you and I can eat those California coffee berries and they're sweet and they taste good. But if you eat more than a handful, it's going to give you the shit something fierce. Yeah. <laughs> And they're, they've evolved to eat these things, but they've also evolved to use those mineral sites maybe as a compensatory measure to get salt. Huh. Yeah, the budgies do the same thing in Australia, those little teeny green mm -hmm. parakeets. Yeah. I will walk you through how I tend to hunt them, and then I want to hear how you tend to hunt them. It's, uh, it's very different because we're, we hunt the different populations. So typically, I'm going to go to the Sierra Nevada. Um. And I'm either going to go to the east side and hang around pinyon pines. So I need to be able to identify the uh, Pinus monophylla, which is our, our pinyon pine. It's, it's a kind of a scrubby, stocky pinyon with, with very small cones uh, that have big nuts in them. And I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes so you can identify that tree. And they only live on the east side of the Sierra. You won't find them at the summit or on the west side. But the first time I ever saw them was in a place called Ice House, which is right off Highway 50. And the problem is I always see them when there are berries and, and other things around. But that area, you can't hunt it until December, and they're not there in December. So that's why I'm giving you a spot on the air. that uh, Go ahead. You can find them, but good luck seeing them in hunting season. <laughs> but they like these big big conifers and they like drop offs they like really steep slopes because they will hang out in flocks and you you almost never see just one bantail pigeon you you might just see the one and then you if you look you'll notice that they've got all kinds of friends around them and i've never seen a flock smaller than a half a dozen and i've and i've i have seen them in the hundreds and so your general thought is if you are hunting and you say, hey, there's a pigeon, and you're nowhere near humans, like you're nowhere near a town, you're nowhere near a farm, chances are it's going to be a bantail pigeon. Because except in the winter on the coast of California, like on a Monterey area, 
where they do hang out at bird feeders all the time. In the Sierra, you don't see them near people. So the, your first indicator is if the, you see a pigeon in the forest, it's probably a bantail. Second, they absolutely love to hang out in flocks above gun range. <laughs> <laughs> like you'll see them, you'll see like 18 of them at the tops of these huge, you know, ponderosa pines or, or uh, lodgepole pines. And like they're standing there looking at you and you're standing there looking at them and there's nothing you can do because they're, they're literally out of shotgun range at the tops of the trees. Uh, ask me how I know. And they will just hang out. You just kind of wait for them to move. And you kind of, what I have often done is once you spot a flock and if they are out of gun range, which is seven times out of 10, you just wait and you see where they go. And you, if you have multiple people, you can put them at different points within a few, you know, hundred yards of either side of that, where they all are. And when they fly, they typically dip into gun range. And if you happen to be where they fly off to, you can get a shot at them there. And this is, this is sort of the typical way that we hunt them until and unless we find a mineral spring that they happen to be working on. And in which case, then you can kind of camp out by the mineral spring. And, you know, again, you're only shooting two birds per person. So it's not like you're going to really damage the a flock that way. Um, and then, if you get to that point, then you're in a much better situation to get your two. But if not, you're really just kind of like breaking your neck looking at them. And you can hear them. I mean, they sound just like regular pigeons when they fly, that, that whistly sound. They don't make a lot of noise otherwise, though. I don't know. I don't really see them as being very talky other than the, the typical pigeon coo coo thing. But that's really hard to hear when they're 120 feet up in the air. Is, is this sound similar to you or is this, no, or do you do something? Not at different? all. <laughs> not at all. Okay. Um, I, I suppose in some sense it's similar. I, I'm not a big pigeon hunter for a good reason. I live in the Rocky mountains. <laughs> um, I, I used to live and work in the Sierra close to where you were, Hank, and not at ice house, but there's a, a well-known spring up by ice house. I'm not going to say what it is. And there's some other ones too, but I, I didn't hunt when I was in California at the time there, but I, I would just like to sit there and watch the things. And pigeons, they seem, these bantails around the springs especially, or feeding sites too, they seem so lackadaisical. They can fly in and it's like, okay, they're going to come, we're going to get to see them. They're going to come down. No, they'll sit in that tree for two to three hours and you wonder what they're thinking or doing. <laughs> and, and it can be, I'm, I've done this at capture sites, you know, where we're trying to ban them and it's, it's frustrating. Um, but also at the spring up there by, by ice house too. But here in the Rocky mountains, I, I don't really go out purposefully just for pigeons. They, they overlap in a season with dusky grouse here. So I'm more opportunistic and what I'm looking for is a berry patch or something. Um, a well, you know, a, a big berry patch. And that's, out in the wild here, that that's going to be your main possibility of finding them. But that's it's not quite a needle in a haystack kind of approach. But um, it's got to be close because I just don't see that many, especially during hunting season <laughs> of uh, course. here in Colorado. <laughs> um, it's like some other hunting I do here. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, some of these animals that I hunt, ptarmigan's another one here. I just don't see them that often. I like to try just because I like to be out in the mountains here, but um, 
I just don't see a whole lot of pigeons here. And there's a reason their harvest of pigeons in the interior population is so low. It's because they're fewer, they're less dense, and they're really hard to find. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, so, okay. So how many, how many times do you go out looking for grouse? And in that time, uh, how many times do you see pigeons? Um, I go grouse hunting. I try and get out about a dozen times a year. May not always be that, maybe a little more sometimes. I got a lot of sites staked out that I can drive to within an hour, hour and a half. So I like to do that. And I will see pigeons, not often, but sometimes in the morning, they must be leaving a roost to go somewhere else to feed because I usually see them flying high treetops. <laughs> That's, and I, I'm not lucky enough yet to be at the right place where they're coming down to feed. But you'll typically see them on every any given hunt. No, it's pretty rare, actually. Okay, that's um, I was I, wondering. I, so if you go twelve times, how many times do you see them? Oh, just a couple times. Okay, just a couple times. I I I live in the foothills above Denver, and they're here too. Every once in a while, I see them, and it's not even every year, but they're here. You know, you look at the bird blogs or whatever they are. People see them and they note them, and so people go and look at them. But um, they're just not widespread here. I fell in love with this bird because, uh, A, I love pigeon hunting because I like to eat pigeons. There is an allure to this, to at least in my mind, I hunt pigeons because I want to hunt pigeons the right way. I want to hunt them as a respectful hunter in the sense of I would like to hunt pigeons to hunt pigeons because I like to eat them. And I like the way they live. And I also want to hunt pigeons in a way that there will be bantail pigeons for millennia after I'm I'm gone. Whereas our ancestors didn't do that. And so there is a I feel like I'm I'm trying to redeem the modern hunter in terms of this particular species because we did it so much wrong in the past that I want to show that you can still hunt this bird. And, and see its population not only be stable, but maybe increase. I mean, I know anecdotally, and this, you know, of course, the plural of anecdote is not data. <laughs> anecdotally, the, there are way more bantels in my particular stomping grounds now than there were 16 years ago. And I don't know if that's just a fluctuation, but I'd like to think it's because we are giving them a break in the sense that there's it's like a, and I think it's a nine day season and a short season with a low bag limit and low hunter effort equals giving the bird a chance to come back. Now, some people would say, well, why don't you just shut the season down altogether like you did in the, in the, you know, in the early part of the 20th century. The problem with that is to my knowledge, there are only a handful of cases where, the authorities, whether it's state or federal, has shut down a season on a species and then reopened it since World War II. And I, the snipe is the only one that comes to mind. Now, there are some years where we can't take any canvasbacks, for example, but that's like a one-year deal. They've not like shut down duck hunting. So I, I'm just going to say it. like I don't know that I trust the state of California or maybe even the feds to reopen it if they were to shut a season down completely. And I think this kind of remnant hunting that we're allowed is, you know, well, me as a, as a chef and a, and a hunter, I would love to have a bag limit of four. 
I'm perfectly okay with it being two until it's ready to be four. I was thinking because some of the stuff I was I was waiting and you didn't quite get to what I was thinking about, but I work on a lot of different species and one of the commonalities that I run into, you know, you're always trying to define why are you doing this? Why 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 do you want to set the bag at two versus four? And one of its you're always wanting to conserve the species. You're right, um, but it also begs the question: why you know why don't you just shut it down if there's any sort of risk or 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 reduce it substantially? And in working with the state folks, what I get a lot, what I hear a lot is being able to hunt is is very important to some people. It, it, it's it's generally trying to maintain that tradition and one of the concerns when you get to closed seasons i mean a closed season here or there maybe but long-term closure is you lose that continuity you lose that culture you lose that tradition possibly and and that's that's a big concern for the state folks especially they're they're way more in contact with with the everyday hunter than i am you know i interact with a lot of hunters but these guys are getting who knows how many calls every day. You know, these are these are the on the ground game managers that I'm working with. And there's there's great concern. You know, we want to maintain our hunting tradition. And so to perpetuate that, close seasons are difficult. Yeah, I mean, it's not good. Like, I mean, on anything, because I can I can think of the most significant season closure in my hunting and fishing career was full on closure was the there was a two year spot where we could not catch salmon in California and that hurt that hurt a lot like we couldn't catch any anywhere uh we knew it we understood it and they brought it back and now salmon fishing's good again uh but of course salmon is a species that comes back very quickly another one in my lifetime it was a sort of closure so this is an interesting one and I grew up in New Jersey and through my entire childhood all the way through college. So my all my formative years, striped bass had a minimum size limit of 36 inches. Now, I don't know if you've ever caught a lot of striped bass in the East Coast. A 36-inch striped bass is a monster. And why would you bother fish for them? There's no point in fishing for them when the size limit is that big. So nobody fished for them. I mean, a couple guys did because they remembered before and it was that kind of they wanted to still be able to, and this is what you're talking about, is that they're, yeah, you could fish for them, but you could never keep one unless it was 36 inches or above. So for my entire formative years, stripers were a pain in the ass, like because you'd always catch short ones, and you'd have to get, throw them back, and, and sometimes they'd be so thick that you can't keep them. And so like it, it totally colors your view of a, of a species, and I could totally see... With pigeons, already it's like you talk. You say you're going to go pigeon hunting, and nine times out of ten, no, 98 times out of 100, people are going to think you're just going to go to a, a dairy barn and shoot regular pigeons. But no, there's this bantail, and most people don't even know they exist even. In. I don't know if it's a good analogy, but I like college football. <laughs> so uh, do I. Go yeah, Badgers? We, yeah, no, go Gophers. But, um, <laughs> but uh as we can see what's unfolding in our country right now, <laughs> a lot of people, really, they like it way more than I do. <laughs> um, I'm an interested fan. But 
there's a threat that we weren't going to have a college football season. And there's still some question about what it's going to look like. And I, I don't know that that's a good analogy for hunting, but hunting stirs those same kind of emotions that you're seeing in the hardcore college football fan right now to me. That, that I don't know why that occurred to me. It's probably because my Big Ten football is not on, but I, I think there is a devoted following of pigeon hunters who do this. And they introduce their kids to it or their friends, and, and that perpetuates the tradition. So without that opportunity, how how is that going to work? I just don't know. So if you are hunting them, uh, this is a time where you might want to bring your 12-gauge out. I have shot them with a 20 gauge quite a lot, and that works. You, they're tough birds. They're tougher than than the regular barn pigeon. I like to shoot them with like bismuth sixes. If you are in a state that allows you to shoot lead, lead sixes are fine. Uh, they don't. We can't shoot lead in California, but you want uh, a lot of pellets. You want them to be powerful, and you want <laughs> and you need to lead this bird like nobody's business. It is the them and along with their regular cousins, they're the fastest game bird in North America. Nothing flies faster than a pissed off pigeon. They can hit almost 100 miles an hour. And while typically you're not shooting at a fleeing pigeon, so they're they're half that fast, they're still fast. I can't tell you how many times I've seen somebody shoot at either a bantail or a regular pigeon and you see a tail feather come off. Like, yeah, they're faster than you think. So the other deal is because bandales are typically in a forest, I don't find it ethical to shoot both of your pigeons in one volley because, God forbid, you lose track of one of them. And tip, I've never heard of anybody hunting pigeons with dogs. Um, so typically it's just you and your gun. So if you shoot one and it falls, it's often going to be on some crazy slope in the middle of the forest, and you better just work your way down. Now, the cool thing about when you drop a pigeon is all of the columbids, so both doves and pigeons, their feathers aren't really on very well. Like, I don't know, it's a design flaw or something. But as they fall through the branches, they're dropping feathers. And so when they hit the ground, they're dropping feathers. And the gray feathers of a pigeon in the normally brown tan forest floor, that's going to help you find that bird if you if you don't see exactly where it lands. And since you only get two... You do your don't lose any birds. That's <laughs> that's your main job. It's like don't shoot them where you can't recover them, and and do your damnedest to to, to recover them. I, I did want to ask you. I have never heard of anybody using dogs with them. Have you? No, I don't. I, I, every once in a while, I use a dog for grouse. Um, my dog loves the forest. I don't know how good she is on grouse all the time, but um, I, I don't know of anybody. It's usually especially in the Pacific, people are waiting, you know, by a food source or a mineral site. So uh, dogs really not necessary. Think it through. So That was my thought too. I mean, are, are you with me on the kind of the, the pretty powerful number sixes or fives? I'm walking around with sixes. So that, that's what I use. But again, I'm not a big pigeon hunter. <laughs> Just yeah. I don't have the opportunity. So I can't say one way or the other where that's the right load, in my opinion. I want to kind of finish this up with a, the eating aspect of it. Now, now I'll go back to what I just said about the, the feathers not being on very tough. For the love of all that is holy in this earth or any other, please pluck your pigeons. I mean, 
it, it, <laughs> I, you only get two. Like, chances are you're going to kill like six in a whole season. It's not that big a deal. It takes about two minutes to pluck a pigeon, and it's super easy. It's the easiest bird. Doves and pigeons are the easiest birds to pluck there is, period. End of story. So pluck them. They are the size of about a chucker, so they're partridge size. They're a little bit bigger than a regular pigeon, and they're th- maybe three times the size of a morning dove. They are all red meat, as, as all their friends are, and they can live a long time. Side note, do you know how long they, they normally live in the wild? Pigeons, on average, you know, once they make it out of the nest, probably five or six years. But I believe there's records up to 20. For yeah, yeah. Like, like doves are, are, are kind of plastic like that, too. And like this is the other thing about like so you can doves will always be tender because chances are I mean, it's a you know, we talked about it in the dove episode. I know of a personally of a, at least a four year old male morning dove because um, Holly used to ban them for the state of California. And there this has been years since she's done it and there's still one kicking around. But typically they only live less than a year. So if you're talking about a pigeon that if it makes it out of the nest is typically three to six, it's going to be a bit tougher from a cook's perspective. It's a bit more like waterfowl than it would be like uh, like a quail or a chucker, which, you know, all the chicken birds live fast and die hard. Pigeons are a little bit, I mean, their main enemy are raptors. They're primarily caring about hawks. So they fly fast, they fly far, they're tough, and they're long-lived. So that tells you a few things. I still deeply love them uh, pan-roasted. And, and typically because it is it is that one ceremonial meal that I'm going to do in any given year, I will pluck the bird, cut the backbone out, and I will take the legs and separate them from the crown. Now, I'll show you pictures of it in the show notes. But so basically what you get is you get the two legs and then you get the crown. So the, the breast with the skin on the bone with the drumettes, you know, the first first digit of the wing. And so you cook the each pigeon is in three pieces. And if you pan roast it in a frying pan with some high smoke point oil, you can then control the heat on all the parts of that bird so that you don't overcook the breast of a, of a pigeon. So pigeon, like any red meat bird, you're going to want to serve it medium to medium rare. You do not want to long stew a pigeon if you can help it. Now, there are exceptions, and my mind is immediately going to something like a beer rock like a, or a runza, you know, which is a, basically a, a dough with, with meat inside or a pot pie or a pasty or something like that. Those are, those would be options, and those are actually very traditional ways to eat pigeons. Um, now, that said, it's a bantail. So while I might make beer rocks or a pot pie with barn pigeons, bantails are special. They're super special. And the, the, the other cool thing, and we've talked about it the whole episode, is well, what do they eat? They eat acorns. They eat pinion pines. They eat berries. They, they eat... Virtually everything that they eat, and I'll put a link to a food habit study of bantail pigeons that I've, I've read several, virtually everything they eat is delicious to us as well. So my advice is always like, well, look where you are when you shot that pigeon. Pick those berries. Process some of those acorns or do something. Make this make this one meal that you're going to get a special thing and make it taste of the environment that you're in. Well beyond any other culinary advice I can give you on on bantels, like just make it and make it an event, make it a date night, make it something special because this bird is 
among the most special birds in North America. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but that was my that was my soapbox. (laughs) No, you. Yeah, I don't think your audience would like me telling them how I cook game birds. It's really usually pretty simple, Um, and I will roast them usually, but uh, I I don't. I I obviously don't go into the great thought you did. I will add. I think one of my favorite ways to cook, and I I haven't had the opportunity to shoot a bantail pigeon when I've been out camping, but uh, is is over a tripod. And it's kind of a smoke water steam mix. I've cooked grouse that way, um, which don't really need much. My experience with a lot of these game birds that are eating the berries and stuff, you don't have to put a whole lot of seasoning or anything with them. You can cook them with the berries, eat them with the berries, whatever. But um, just over an open fire with that steam and smoke is 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 probably one of my favorite ways to prepare them. It is. It really mm-hmm. is. I mean, there's something about, you know smoke in pretty much any game application yeah but also you know a little foil over the top sometimes with just some water some beer even you know it depends how adventurous you're feeling i suppose or wine if you have that and i just to get a little bit of that steam going in there too yeah because you mean especially the especially pigeons because they're long-lived they they can be tough so you've got to be more careful with a when you cook a pigeon than you would with a dusky that's good to know yeah, duskies. Chances are a dusky is going to be a year uh, or two, maybe, if you get a big boomer. Think about steak you buy at the store. Really, the typical steak is only going to be a year and a half old. Whereas now, think about a trophy mule deer. You know, you hunt mule deer. How old's your How old's your trophy mule deer? Seven or eight, sometimes a lot older. And it's a whole different. It's a, literally a whole different animal in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. So, is there anything that we should have talked about? Uh, about bantails that we that we missed you know i i really can't think of much off the top of my head it's a cool bird you know i mean i i encourage everybody out there uh who has a season to to pursue it and to, even if you don't get one it puts you in really good territory and like you said you know just go grouse hunting and look look to the skies or you'll hear them you know you'll hear that they sound like pigeons so you're like holy shit it's a bantail let's get it uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but like you said my experience with them is they're flying a treetop. They're moving like a bullet for whatever oh reason. <laughs> yeah. That's always like, well, those were bandtails. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I think they cruise at like 50 miles an hour. They can. They can go really fast. I don't remember what the recorded speed is. But, you know, especially when you see them, move, you know, they're moving between feeding mineral sites, something. And they, they're just they're just great birds for distance. They're incredible. And they're pretty. Yes, so they're gorgeous, especially in the hand. They are really gorgeous. Having captured quite a few of them, they are really gorgeous. There's no, it's interesting. There's no like pigeon society, is there? I mean, like you know, like pheasants forever or quail forever or ducks unlimited or California waterfowl. Like, there's, I don't think there is anything for pigeons, is there? No, not that I'm aware of. Anyway, I really appreciate you coming on. How can someone uh, get in touch with you if they want to talk with you about pigeons? Uh, my email would be the easiest. I mean, you can look me up, Mark Siemens, with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Mark underscore Siemens at fws.gov. All right. I will put that in the show notes. Once again, thanks a lot for coming on. This has been a great conversation, and I'm going to try and turn this around quick enough so that people can actually listen to it while they're going to a pigeon hunt. Sounds good. Thanks, Hank.
So that is our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed hearing all about band-tailed pigeons as much as I enjoyed talking with Mark Siemens about them. As always, you can follow me on social media. I am, in general, HuntGatherCook. So that means I am at HuntGatherCook on Instagram. I run a private Facebook group called HuntGatherCook. And my website is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, which is HuntGatherCook.com, or you can find it at Honest-Food.net. You will find literally thousands of recipes for everything from, yes, pigeons to other wild game, all kinds of fish and seafood, as well as mushrooms and other edible wild plants found all over North America. A quick shout out to my sponsors, Filson and Hunt to Eat. Thank you for sponsoring the program. And if you would consider donating to this podcast to help keep it independent, I try to keep the ads as minimal as possible, and that's why I'm only doing two in the entire hour-plus-long podcast. You can make a contribution to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast on the website, which is huntgathercook.com, and any little bit will do. Anything from 6 bucks will get you a bumper sticker, all the way up to $35 will get you a signed cookbook, and you can go anywhere up from there. Thanks again for listening. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and I will talk to you next week.